We're delighted that you've chosen to worship with us on this Sunday before Thanksgiving. And we're going to be talking about Thanksgiving today, as you saw from our text in Psalm 100. So if you want to open uh, your Bibles to Psalm 100, we'll get to that again in just a moment. The title of our lesson today is in the form of a question. Why not give thanks? We know we ought to give thanks. We have so much for which to give thanks. And in the Bible, we are commanded to give thanks. So why not give thanks? Psalm 100, I believe, gives the secret, or at least a secret, of a happy and contented Christian life. Many Christians are not happy. And therefore, it's very difficult to be thankful. Unless we have hearts filled with contentment, the thanksgiving is not going to be bubbling out. Now, some people think that you can only be content if certain conditions are met in your life. But the Apostle Paul stated that he had learned to be content in whatever condition or circumstance he found himself. Whether he was in need or whether he had plenty, and that's what we want to do. We want to learn to be content so that the thanksgiving just naturally bubbles out of our hearts through our mouths. Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan pastor writing in 1648, explains how contentment works for the Christian. We've mentioned this book on a number of occasions, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Here's what he had to say. It's a mystery that a Christian is the most contented man in the world and yet the most unsatisfied man in the world. Now, how could that be? Again, quoting, A man who has learned the art of contentment is the most contented with any low condition that he has in this world. And yet he cannot be satisfied with the enjoyment of all the world. Here is the mystery of it. Though his heart is so enlarged that the enjoyment of all the world and 10,000 worlds cannot satisfy him for his portion, yet he has a heart quieted under God's disposal if he gives him but bread and water. To join these two together must needs be a great art and mystery. Though he is contented with God in a little, yet those things that would content other men will not content him. If he had the quintessence of all the excellences of all the creatures in the world, it could not satisfy him. And yet this man can sing and be merry and joyful when he has only a crust of bread and a little water in the world. Great is the mystery of godliness, not only in the doctrinal part of it, but also in the practical part of it also. End of quote. Next, Pastor Burroughs gives 15 characteristics of a grateful, contented person. I'm going to mention only one in hope that you would be challenged to find out the other 14 because they are pretty good. Again, quoting, A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. It's not so much by adding to what he would have or what he has, not by adding any more to his condition, but rather by subtracting from his desires so as to make his desires and his circumstances even and equal. A carnal heart knows no way to be contented but this, 
I have such and such possessions, and if I added to them, and the other comfort added that I do not now have, then I should be contented. But contentment does not come in that way. It does not come, I say, by adding to what you want, but by subtracting from your desires. It's all one to a Christian, whether I get up to what I want or get my desires down to what I have, either to attain to what I do desire or to bring, my, bring down my desires to what I've already attained. My wealth is the same, for it is fitting for me to bring, down, bring my desire down to my circumstances as it is to raise my circumstances up to my desires. Well, that's pretty good. Maybe not for Americans, but that's pretty good for Christians. Jeremiah Burroughs is not saying that we should never aspire to a better home or a larger automobile to meet the needs of our families. He's not saying that if you're suffering, you should not look for a legitimate means to get out from under the suffering. Uh, If you're sick, uh, go to the doctor and try to get well, if you possibly can. What he is saying is we don't have to be on the treadmill of continual pursuit of materialism as are most people in our American culture. No, we can, from the heart, be thankful at all seasons, whether we have much or whether we have plenty. And certainly, this is a good time to focus on what we do have and on what God has given us. Why give thanks? God made us. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The good shepherd takes care of his sheep. So why not thank him? Adrian Rogers was the beloved pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis for many years, and when he died at his funeral, his daughter gave a testimony. And she said, my dad found something good in everything that came along. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, he said, hey, it's a win-win situation for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now that is a contented heart speaking. Psalm 100, I believe, is a ticket to that kind of contentment. It's the only psalm in the Bible that carries the subtitle, a psalm of praise. Or if you have a modern translation, a psalm of thanksgiving. In the Bible, in your pew there, it reads, A psalm for giving thanks. That's precisely what we want to learn to do. Charles Spurgeon, in his writings on this psalm, quotes from the speaker's commentary on this short chapter, and here's what he says. This psalm contains a promise of Christianity. As the writer, as winter at its close contains the promise of spring. The trees are ready to bud. The flowers are just hidden by the light soil. Clouds are heavy with rain. The sun shines in its strength. Only a genial wind from the south is wanted to give new life to all things. I would add that with the coming of the greater fullness of the person of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we are better equipped and able to do what this psalm encourages us to do. Would you like to truly bless God's holy name? We were singing about that this morning in First Light. If you would, we're given some methodology in this psalm, and uh, chapter 4 mentions that we should bless his name.
Let me read it again from the King James Version and see if you can pick out our three-part methodology. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Three points very simply. Number one, shout joyfully. Shout joyfully. Number two, serve gladly. And number three, enter into his presence thankfully. And of course, with singing. Now, I've heard some people say, oh, I can't sing. You don't want to hear me sing. Well, you better have a song in your heart when you enter into the presence of God. Shout joyfully. The phrase, make a joyful noise, from the King James Bible, is only one word in the Hebrew language, the word ruah. It means to raise a noise by shouting or with an instrument as the shofar ram's horn trumpet. It means that you split the ears with sound. We're talking about a great sound. It could be a sound of joy or of victory or of alarm. It's the same word used in Joshua 6 where they marched around the walls of Jericho and shouted with a great shout and the walls came tumbling down. It's the word used to describe the exaltation of the people when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. There was a great celebration. In 2 Chronicles 13, Jeroboam of the northern kingdom came against Abijah in the southern kingdom with 800,000 men. The southern kingdom could only muster 400,000 men and they knew they were in some serious trouble. So they cried unto the Lord. Then all the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before King Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. In the book of Ezra, when the captives returned from the Babylonian captivity to Jerusalem and the foundation for the new temple was laid, people wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern from the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. That was a great commotion. Now here's my question. When is the last time you shouted with a great shout other than when the Aggies or the Longhorns scored a touchdown? I remember, I think in 205, we were at the main lodge at headwaters watching the national championship game, And it was getting late at night, about 10.30, in the waning moments of the fourth quarter, Texas was two touchdowns behind, two possessions behind. And I decided it was time to go home at that point. So we got in the car, and we started traveling up to the windmill lodge, and I turned on the radio, and all I could hear was yelling. The announcer couldn't even say anything because of the noise in the background. And I knew what that meant. We had left 
too early. Now, you say, well, it may not be appropriate now, culturally, to go around shouting about other kinds of things. Are you kidding me? People might think you're crazy, but I hear on the radio, whenever I tune in the Dave Ramsey show, people shouting for all they're worth. We are dead free! So there are some things to shout about. Now, here comes an opportunity, especially for you young people. I know you'll help me with this. What better place to shout praise to God than in the church? So I want to count to three, and let's all shout together as loud as you can, hallelujah for the cross of Christ. Now, don't be looking around. You might be a little embarrassed, but I want us to really shout so that people at the Spotted Pony could hear something going on over here. And they would know, at least, that we're excited about something. So, yes. (laughs) Maybe so. Well, they'll hear us back in the kitchen, so they probably will. So, uh, have you got it now? Here it is. Of course, if you're not excited in your heart, then it's just going to be a pathetic whimper. But uh, one, two, three... Hallelujah for the cross of Christ. Now we've got to turn it on. Okay, here we go. One, two, three. Hallelujah for the cross of Christ. Yes, that's good. We need to try that more often. Now, is that just a a gimmick to keep people awake in church? No. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. So if you like that shout, we can all go out to approach his house and get in the back 40 and practice back there, our shouting. Number two, serve gladly. Serve gladly. How do you serve? Do you serve gladly? Many people right here in this congregation serve gladly because I see them serving gladly all the time. The word abad means to serve, to toil, to labor. You can remember that Jacob served Laban for 20 years, and he married the girl finally that he wanted to marry, and then he was tired of serving Laban. It could mean to serve in the vineyards, or in the flocks and herds, in construction, or in service to the king as one of his subjects. It could refer to serving King Jesus by serving those who are members of his body, and we see a lot of that around here. Often the noun form, servant, is used in Scripture as an humble reference to oneself. Abraham said to his three visitors in Genesis 18, I'll bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may go on since you have visited your servant, referring to himself. In the book of Isaiah, the word servant takes on a messianic designation. It's used 31 times in chapters 39 through 66. Christ, of course, set the example of gladly serving and obeying his Father even unto death on the cross. Joshua laid it out clearly in Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Christ drove it home in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And mammon is money. And there was a good reason for Christ saying that because three verses earlier, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if money and the things that it can buy are the treasure of your heart, you'll never get enough because that's just the way human nature is. You'll never get enough to be contented and the praise and thanksgiving will be kind of squelched in the process there. There's nothing quite like a good example of someone serving gladly. When I was in high school, I had two excellent examples. My dad sold air conditioning units in his auto parts business, and he had two men who would install those units for him. Uh, They both worked at the post office, but in their spare time when they were not at work, they did the installation. And since my dad believed in work, I was working with Bill and Keith all summer installing air conditioners. These guys were married, middle-aged men. They were Christians, and they were contented, thankful men. And they helped everybody, people in the church, people outside the church, friends, poor people. They did it all. I was thankful that God put me with them instead of a bunch of malcontent 16-year-olds because that's exactly what I would have been because contentment is contagious. I had enough of the other influence nine months in school, but it was refreshing to be with those men and see them serve like that. Number three, enter thankfully. And as you enter his courts with praise and you enter thankfully, you want to have that song in your heart that is mentioned in verse 2. Come before his presence with singing. You can sing out loud if you like. That's a good thing. Uh, I know many of you do that in your homes. And it's good for children to learn to worship God as they sing praise songs and hymns and whatever you like to sing in your home. Now this word, tudah, thanksgiving, means properly an extension of the hand. So if you like to raise your hand as you're praising God, this is one place that it comes from. It's mentioned in other verses there in Psalms. It means adoration. It means praise. The word tadaw is a little different from our thank you in the English. In the theological word book of the Old Testament, uh, we see an interesting explanation of this. This verb was predominantly employed to express one's public proclamation or declaration of God's attributes and his works. This concept is at the heart of the meaning of praise. Praise is a confession or declaration of God, who he is and what he does. This term is most often translated to thank in the English versions, but it is not really a proper rendering, uh, not really a proper rendering in the Old Testament. There is as yet no verb that means only to think. Tudal, which is usually translated to think, is not used in the Old Testament a single time for an expression of thanks between men. This is clear from the start that this tudal cannot be equated to our thank you, which can be directed equally to God or to man. 
in those places in the Old Testament where our thank as something taking place between men is clearly found, the verb is berek, which does not have the primary meaning of praise but to bless. In view of these facts, it's clear that the Old Testament does not have our independent concept of thanks. The expression of thanks to God is included in praise. It is a way of praising. So if you're giving thanks to God, that is praising God. And we've said during our 30 days of praise that there is a close connection between praise and thanksgiving. They just overlap. So you don't have to worry, which one am I doing right now? Because either one is going to count for both. Now, enter thankfully. Here's the third and last question. Why don't we thank God like we are the most grateful people on earth? You may very well do that. And I trust that everyone would do that. Perhaps, just perhaps, we have become like the people in the town of thanks. Across the sea of imagination in a time long ago, there was a delightful little village nestled in the mountains right in the heart of the kingdom. A sign on the outskirts of the village notified travelers that they were entering the town of thanks. The air of the town of thanks was fresh and clean. The sun beamed brightly through the tall trees on the surrounding hills. Children played excitedly in the park, that is, when they weren't busy learning the family trade from their parents. It was important for children to learn the trade well. For the town of thanks was renowned for its superb craftsmanship and exquisite artistry, skills that had been carefully passed down from one generation to another. Visitors traveled from near and far across the kingdom to purchase wares from the legendary town. Some even came from outside the kingdom. The merchants of the town of thanks had a reputation for unusual attention to detail. The woodcarver fashioned his pieces with great care and accuracy. The weaver labored diligently over his womb, and his fabrics were woven using only the finest of threads. And every morning the baker made fresh loaves of bread using a recipe passed down in his family. There was no denying the extraordinary quality of the goods produced in the town of thanks. But the great distinction, that unique charm that set this town apart from every other, was the signature displayed on every product that was sold, a simple thank you. The inscription was etched into every piece, the woodcarver of the woodcarver's work. It was embroidered on the edge of every bolt of the weaver's cloth. It was even stenciled on each bag of the baker's bread. At every town meeting, without fail, the village elders would remind the townspeople, our worksmanship would mean nothing without those who buy our goods and provide our livelihood. We must always remember to express our appreciation to every customer. It was a joy to shop in the town of thanks. Nowhere else could the (coughs) citizens of the kingdom purchase such fine merchandise. Nowhere did they feel so warmly welcomed. Those who visited the town of thanks were always sure to return. Though generally crowded with shoppers, there was something peaceful and inviting about the streets. The craftsmen who tended their stores were always so friendly and were never too busy to answer customers' questions or help them to find exactly what they were looking for. The woodcarver, ever so humble, was quick to inform visitors of other products available in the town and would nearly blush with gratitude over each purchase of his own work. The weaver, busy and diligent in his labor, could always find time to visit 
with his customers and make them feel appreciated. And the baker, so tender and warm in spirit, would always give hope and encouragement to any who entered his store. And so it continued from season to season and from year to year. From one generation to another, this rich heritage passed on. But in time, yes, in time, things began to change. Not all at once, but slowly, almost imperceptibly. According to one wise man, the change began when business was booming. The people became so busy that they forgot to say thank you. By and by, they began to consider the inscription an unnecessary expense. Before anyone realized what was happening, the town of thanks had ceased to be thankful. And when gratitude left, other things, ugly things, took its place. The shopkeepers no longer waited within their stores, content to help those who stopped in. Now they would gaze out the window or stand on the outside waiting for shoppers, looking for shoppers, expecting the shoppers. If the shopper would arrive, but the purchase was less than expected, the owner was annoyed. And if a prospective buyer went to a neighboring shop and made his purchase, the owner's heart would grow hot with jealousy. These were sad days in the town of thanks this town which once had had so much, now wanted more. In time, word of the change traveled back to the king of the kingdom. He knew the town's long-term reputation, and he knew what was needed to restore thankfulness to the town of thanks. But would the people be able to see their need, and then would they want to change? One day, an elderly man, wearing threadbare clothes, carrying an empty bag on his shoulder, entered the town. The woodcarver eyed the prospective customer with interest until he caught sight of the old man's shriveled purse. When the old man walked into his store, the woodcarver remained outside looking for more promising customers. For a few minutes, the woodcarver spied the old man examining an especially lovely carving in the window in a few minutes. Be careful with that old man. My products are expensive, he said with pride. Slowly the old man loosened his purse, no longer shriveled but bulging with coins. He emptied it onto the table before the woodcarver, speechless for a moment. The woodcarver soon found himself humbly shaking the old man's hand. Thank you, sir. Thank you for buying my product. I really didn't expect that. The old man smiled, placed the carving in his bag, and walked across the street to see the weaver. The weaver looked up from his work to see the old man slowly approach and enter his store. I don't have time for him, the weaver muttered to himself. I need some real shoppers who can afford my workmanship. A moment or so later, the old man selected a fine bolt of woven linen from the shelf and headed toward the weaver. That's my best fabric, old man. I don't want to get it dirty, the weaver said sharply. Deliberately as before, the old man pulled from his vest a beautifully jeweled timepiece and placed it in the weaver's hands. At that moment, time and the demands of a busy workday ceased to be important to the weaver. It was as though the love of the world paled next to what he saw in that precious timepiece. He thanked the old man over and over for buying his product. The old man simply smiled, placed his purchase in his bag with the carving, and walked next door to see the baker. The baker, who in better days had been full of hope, encouragement, and gratitude, was now discouraged and without joy. 
Concerned and worried over many things, the baker scarcely noticed his aged customer. Carefully, the old man selected a loaf of bread and placed his payment into the hand of the baker. Their eyes met for a moment. The baker knew the price being paid was far too great. He wanted to push it away, but he understood that it had to be, and he received the payment with gratitude. Tears welled up in his eyes and began to overflow. Tears of joy for hope had returned to his heart. Thank you, old man, for coming to town today. Thank you for buying my goods. The old man left town, wearied from his shopping. The items in his bag were now his. He had paid for them an exquisite, uh, an exquisite carving, a piece of fine linen, and a freshly baked loaf of bread. But the old man saw his purchases differently. From the woodcarver, he had bought the sculptor of pride and left the payment of humility. From the weaver, he had purchased impatience, which had blossomed full from the love of this world. In exchange, he had given a vision for things of timeless value. And from the baker's heart, he had taken discouragement and despair and left in their place unquenchable hope. The bag of goods grew heavy on the old man's shoulder as he stumbled up the path that led out of the valley. After days of travel, he finally approached his home. The drawbridge was lowered to allow him to enter the castle. As he made his way past the guards and attendants, each bowed low in respect before him. The bag he carried, filled with pride, love of this world, and despair, was taken down to the dungeon where it would never see the light of day again. Finally, having returned to the palace, his mission fulfilled, he took his seat on the throne. As he did so, his eyes fell on an object standing in the corner. Used only once, but always to be remembered, was a blood-stained old rugged cross. Thank you, your majesty. Thank you. Could it be that uh, expectations tend to replace thanksgiving? Expectations of what I ought to have in life expectations of how I ought to be treated by others, and expectations of what my circumstances ought to look like. This is easy for Americans. It's accomplished through advertising. What do you think would be the expected total for paid media in 2014? $177 billion. I'm not saying there's anything evil about advertising. I'm just saying there it is. Some of it might be evil. Over two decades ago, Spirit of Revival magazine published an article pointing out some differences between a grateful heart and an ungrateful heart. Let's take a quick look, just going down the list, to see in which camp we might find ourselves during this Thanksgiving season in the year of our Lord, 2014. Number one, a grateful person is an humble person, while ingratitude reveals a proud heart. The grateful person has a certain sense of unworthiness. I have so much more than I deserve. The ungrateful person says, I deserve so much more than I have. And that becomes the driving motivation as he weighs everything that comes along in life between what he has or what he gets and what he thinks he ought to have. You can think of Ruth, who was widowed, went to a foreign land with her mother-in-law who was somewhat bitter 
and even admitted that. And then Boaz provided for Ruth a means of livelihood to feed the family. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said to him, Why have I found grace in your eyes that you should take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? Now, what would most people have said? That's the least that guy could do. He's got money. He's got more money and he knows what to do with it. He ought to be helping the poor. But she had a humble heart. Number two, a grateful heart is conscious of God and others, while an ungrateful heart is self-conscious and self-centered. Grateful people tend to think about other people and how they can help them. They tend to think about the Lord and what He's doing in their lives, and a lot of times they even talk about that. But an ungrateful person gets focused on my needs, my feelings, my hurts, my desires, how I have been treated, neglected, failed, or wounded. An unthankful person is full of himself. And he's looking at how the world is treating him. Now, I'm not suggesting that the world can't treat you badly and make you sad. But God is in control of all of that. They treated Christ that way. And he said clearly, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So when those kind of things come, we've got to focus on him and the grace that he can give. And even be thankful because he says we need to give thanks in all things. You know one of the most common end results of ingratitude? It's the sin of moral impurity. Because people start failing to be thankful for what they have or for what God has given. And they decide, you know, I think I can please myself somewhere else better than what God has done for me, even if it breaks God's law. Oh, they don't think about that part. They just think about that burning desire. And so they've got to bring their condition up to their desire. No, we better think about bringing desire down to our condition as we trust God to be in control of those desires. Number three, a grateful heart is a full heart, while an unthankful heart is an empty one. No matter how little a grateful person has, they seem to enjoy a sense of fullness. You will remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. I've learned how to be abased and I've learned how to abound. In verse 18, he says, I have all and abound, I am full. If you have an unthankful heart, you know what it's like? It's like having a bucket and before you get home, all the blessing has drained out of the bucket because it has a hole in the bottom of it. You want to be able to keep your blessings right there in your heart and enjoy them. So don't let the hole of unthankfulness grow in your heart. Number four, people with grateful hearts are easily contented while ungrateful people are subject to bitterness and discontent. In 50 years of talking with people or counseling sometimes, I've seen a lot of unhappy Christians, just chronically unhappy about everything. Some are depressed, some are frustrated, some are emotionally un unstable. Certainly they need our help and our encouragement and our comfort, but I think for a lot of those people, ingratitude is the beginning 
of the problem. I'm not suggesting if you have some physical malady that you're not thankful. I'm suggesting that you need to be thankful so that you don't get some physical malady down the road later on. Certainly there are all kinds of reasons for sickness, and we see that in the Scripture. One being to the glory of God when He heals you. Now, an ungrateful person is hanging on to something. You know what he's hanging on to? His rights. I have a right to be treated a certain way. I have a right to my possessions. Don't be fooling with my stuff. Even in the home and the family, rights can be a problem because a lot of other people have some say-so about those things that you're hanging on to. And if you're hanging on to something that is under any control of anybody else, you're in a pretty precarious position because when they take what is rightfully yours or they damage your rights some way, that's going to make you unhappier than you are already. We got to do what the Apostle Paul suggests. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all things. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Sometimes it's a test, I think, to see where our hearts really lie. A.W. Tozer wrote this, Thanksgiving has great curative power. Have your rights been damaged? Get on to some thanksgiving. Oh, excuse me, I'm messing up the quote here. Here's the quote. The heart that is constantly overflowing with gratitude will be safe from those attacks of resentfulness and gloom that bother so many religious people. Matthew Henry. Thanksgiving is a proper answer to dark and disquieting thoughts and may be an effectual means to silence them. Songs of praise are sovereign cordials, that's medicine, to drooping souls and will help us to cure melancholy. When we have no other answer to the suggestions of grief and fear, we have recourse to this. I thank thee, O Father. Number five, a grateful heart will be revealed and expressed by thankful words, while an ungrateful heart will manifest itself in murmuring and complaining. If I've got thanksgiving in my heart, What's going to come out of my mouth? Thanksgiving. But if something else is there, be careful. Somebody observed that some people complain because God put thorns on roses. Other people rejoice because God put roses among the thorns. It's the way you look at things. The last one, number six. Thankful people are refreshing, refreshing life-giving springs while unthankful people pull others down with them into the stagnant pools of their selfish, demanding, miserable ways. Unthankfulness is infectious. It poisons and contaminates the atmosphere of our hearts, homes, and other relationships. But gratefulness is equally contagious. Nancy DeMoss talks about hearing from a young woman who had learned to be thankful. She had cerebral palsy. She had a number of surgeries. Her mom and dad got divorced. Her dad died, and she had a rather lonely existence. But she shared with Nancy DeMoss this homespun verse that she wrote. Thanksgiving is something that you learn to do. It involves a daily walk in trust and prayer. When circumstances get so big you can't understand, just stop and look, in the, look at the cross and you will see the amazing love that is shown for you there. 
realize it's a part of God's plan. You don't have to understand, just take hold of His hand. For you see, God is unlimited. Therefore, in every circumstance, there is a purpose. No matter how dark it looks, just look to Jesus. Take hold of His hand and know that He is working on your behalf. I would encourage you this Thanksgiving, this season, maybe this afternoon, make your Thanksgiving list and go back and review the year and write down everything that you have to be thankful for. Sometimes it gets up in the hundreds of items. And then when your family gets together on Thanksgiving, have a little time for everybody to express that for which they're thankful. Now, we need to be reminded in closing that the Bible didn't say to be, the Bible didn't say to feel thankful. It said to be thankful. Act your way into feeling. And when we don't feel thankful, that's the time that we need to express thanksgiving the most because that takes the focus off of myself and my circumstances and what people may have done or said or anything else. And it puts the focus on God and His promises. And He promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. And He will supply all your need according to His riches in glory through Christ Jesus. So with thanksgiving, I'll become more God-centered and less self-centered, and that's an important part of sanctification. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Now, it's difficult to truly express thanks unless you know Christ and your sins have been forgiven and you've committed your life to Him and you can do that right now if you have never truly done it before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing divine plan of redemption for fallen man. We thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to this earth to teach us how to live, to die for our sin. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming down here. We thank you that you've not left us as orphans when you returned to your home in heaven. You went to prepare a place for us and you sent your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to be with us, to comfort and guide So, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has not had their sins forgiven, who has not confessed their need for a Savior, that this might be the time to do that, that this might be the time to turn over all the problems and cares of life to you because you've said that we should cast all our care upon you. Uh, Lord, we want you to be in control of our lives. We want to have the fruit of the spirit of self-control, but we want to follow your direction. Thank you for this glorious season of Thanksgiving. And as we pray together now corporately, I would ask that you would remind us of things for which we need to be thankful. We thank you for your word that instructs us in this life that you've called us to live. I pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.